As I was entering ninth grade, my dad was fired from his job and he announced to us, guess what family, we're pulling up stakes from little old Hartford City, Indiana, and we're moving to Las Vegas. Viva Las Vegas, okay? So we went from small town, nowhere, Indiana, to big city, Las Vegas, and I was uprooted. I had to leave my extended family, all of the Vanderpools behind in central Indiana. I had to leave behind all of my friends, and once we got to Las Vegas, I felt alone. Now, I've not told anyone this. I don't even think I think I've told Jenny this, but uh, I would go to school, and I would come home and go into my new bedroom, and there was a corner that was kind of the outside corner to the house, and I would kind of curl up in the corner and cry quietly, cry quietly so my parents wouldn't hear me. <laughs> and I did that every day. And I remember crying out to God, why have you sent me here? Where are you? You feel so distant. Oh. And you know what drove that decision? Mom and dad had no emergency funds. So when dad got fired, the first thing that came up, they were like, yeah, okay. Got a job in Vegas. Sure. We'll move. We'll come. Here we come. Boom. As it turns out, that was an incredibly bad decision. We ended up moving back to small town Indiana three months later because not even my parents could take it. Right? <laughs> and, so, and so teenagers and students, here's what I want you to know. You're here in Kentucky because your moms and dads have chosen to live in central Kentucky. When you become an adult, you can go anywhere. You can go anywhere. <laughs> You, Micah, you can go anywhere. You can go to New York City, San Francisco. <laughs> you could go to Glacier National Park and live on just the outskirts of the park. <laughs> or you could go to Upland, Indiana, which is literally in the middle of cornfields and in the middle of nowhere. Um, but Here's the thing, most Americans, most Americans that I know, they actually choose where they live because there was a school or college they wanted to attend that was there, or they took a job there. And most Americans don't ever factor relationships into the decisions about where they're gonna live geographically. And it's the weirdest thing in the world to me. In 1998, I got my ordination letter and back then in Jessamine County, you had to go see the judge executive and you had to register with the local judge executive in order to officiate weddings. I know, ancient times, things have changed. I don't think you have to do that anymore. So it's 1998 and a man named Neil Cassidy is the judge. And I had only heard him referred to as Judge Cassidy or judge or sir. So I go into the courthouse and he's got this big office and this big wooden desk. And on the big wooden desk is this giant book from the 1800s. And so I sit down and I was prepared for this. I thought he's gonna ask me where I went to seminary, what kind of training I have, like da 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 da. First thing out of his mouth, Pastor Vanderpool, who are your people? Thankfully for me, I didn't know this when I came to seminary here that this is where my grandfather grew up. This is where all my extended family people were. The family farm was in Garrett County. I had cousins that farmed there. I had two great aunts that were still living. Um, and then there was the Vanderpool grocery store that was in Lexington, Kentucky in the 1900s, 19-teens, 1920s. So I tell him all of that. He flips the giant ledger around, opens it up, slides it toward me and says, 
write your name and sign your name behind the last one on the ledger. You can marry folks. <laughs> strange, strange thing. So this question that he asked, who are your people? That actually harkens back to the way most humans have lived throughout most of human history. People didn't, that's the question you, you were asked in the United States before World War II in most places of America, who are your people? Who are your people? Because most humans did not venture far from where they were born. Where you were born, that was where you lived. And that household, that was your economic future. Everything about your life was rooted right there. It's only until after World War II in America that we get a lot of people moving all across the country for jobs and stuff. And so now, instead of the question, who are you people, the question that Americans tend to ask is, what do you do? Like, what kind of job do you have? What do you do? But before that, it was, who are your people? Despite all this mobility, despite the fact that we can move from Alabama to Kentucky, from Kentucky to California, from California to Kentucky, despite all of that, you cannot separate geography and friendship. You cannot separate geography and friendship. Geography and proximity matter when it comes to friendship. Social social researchers have been studying how college students make friends for a long time. And they've been, they asked the question, what are the necessary ingredients for two different college students to become close friends? And they determined there were two necessary ingredients of all the ingredients. Here they are, Nathan. One is proximity. You are roommates with that person. That person lives on the floor of your dorm, or you have the same major and you're in the same classes on a recurring basis. Proximity. The other thing that forms friendships is those chance encounters. You're in the laundry room doing laundry and you meet somebody and you have that C.S. Lewis, uh, Lewis moment of, oh, you too? Oh, you're, you, have, you go to a club where people also beat each other up with swords that they've made with their own hands? What? I thought I was the only one. Like, and then all of a sudden, right, this camaraderie starts. And so those are the two ingredients that social researchers have identified as necessary for the formation of friendships proximity, and a chance encounter. These same social scientists in 2015 concluded that geographical distance hinders relationships, hinders friendships. Uh, Our son John found that to be the case. He attended Asbury University, but he lived off campus the whole time and always felt a little bit like he was an outsider to what happened in campus life. So I want to be teaching today from the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 20. And I'm going to read the passage, and then we're going to talk about it a little bit, okay? So Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Later on, after John was arrested, Jesus went into Galilee, where he preached God's good news. The time promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. One day, as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother, Andrew, throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. A little farther up the shore, Jesus saw Zebedee's sons, James and John, in a boat repairing their nets. He called them at once, and they also followed him, leaving their father Zebedee, in the boat with the hired hands. So there's a number of things going on in this passage 
from Mark chapter one. One is this crashing together of the two ages, the old age and the new age, boom, and here they are. And it's kind of fulminating, culminating in the person of Jesus. This is what the prophet Isaiah says. This is what the Lord says, at just the right time, I will respond to you. On the day of salvation, I will help you. I'll protect you and give you to the people as my covenant with them. And so while John the Baptist proclaimed that the kingdom of God was near, Jesus proclaimed and said, the kingdom of God is among you. So something has happened. Something has shifted between John the Baptist and Jesus. And the kicker is in this one little verse. Uh, The kingdom of God has come at last. The kingdom of God is near. Close at hand. Why is it close at hand? Christmas is coming. Christmas is coming. Christmas is coming. God, the omnipresent, omnipotent, everywhere God of the universe, became a baby. Born in a manger in Bethlehem. Had to learn and walk and talk. Was completely dependent on his earthly parents experienced the full range of what it means to be human because he was fully human. I say all the time that if you want to know what God is like, what kind of God that God is, look to Jesus because Jesus is God. Jesus gives us the clearest picture of God. Want to know what God would say? What does Jesus say? Want to know what God feels about something? How does Jesus express that in the Gospels? Look to Jesus. So what was God far off, distant, or maybe in some magic box somewhere tucked in Jerusalem, all of a sudden is close at hand, walking alongside, right in the thick of where we are. Proximity. Proximity. James and John and Peter and Andrew leave their fishing businesses. I love this. One day as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, mark that because much of Jesus' ministry takes place in and around the Sea of Galilee. His closest friends, the three, Simon, James, and John, are from these two groups of fishermen right out of the beginning. Uh, And we see at the next few verses, Zebedee in the boat with the hired men, Zebedee's family had some money that poor Peter, Simon Peter, didn't have. Simon Peter was poor. (laughs) Let me say that again. Simon Peter was poor. James and John had some resources. They had some hired people, hired servants in the boats. A little bit different, a little bit different. So Mark is wanting us to see a couple of things. First of all, Mark is wanting us to see that Jesus demands an absolute response. The call of Jesus demands an absolute response. These men are submitting to God and God's reign. And the other thing that Mark is wanting us to see is that Jesus has authority. When Jesus speaks, people obey. And he's wanting to us to make that connection. And this call here is not dissimilar to the call of Elisha, which is recorded in 1 Kings. So Elijah went and found Elisha, son of Seraphat, plowing a field. There were 12 teams of oxen in the field, and Elisha was plowing with the 12th team. Elijah went over to him and threw his cloak across the shoulders and walked away. Elisha left the oxen standing there, ran after Elijah and said to him, first, let me go kiss my father and mother goodbye, and then I'll go with you. Elijah replied, go on back, but think about what I've done to you. So 
Elisha follows, but not immediately. And out of Elisha's mouth is something that Jesus contradicts in his own ministry. A man comes to him and says, I'll follow you, but I need to bury my father. And Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. You follow me. Um, So all of this, again, takes place around the Sea of Galilee. I don't have a map, but much of Jesus' ministry was in and around the Sea of Galilee. And those people become his closest friends. And again, we see these two ingredients, time and space. God is drawn near to us in time and space in the person of Jesus. And Jesus cultivates some very deep friendships with men because they spent time together. Um, So geography matters. God didn't just put a cosmic banner in the sky that said, repent and believe. God became one of us, entered our world, right? If you were to think, if I were to give you a tablet and say, here, I want you to think about what kind, if there's a God, like what are qualities that this God would have? What are things that this God would do and not do? I'm not sure many of us would have come up with the idea, you know what? I think what God will do is God will become one of his created things (laughs) so that he can show them how much he loves them and how they're made in his image and how he wants to redeem them from their own rebellion, stubbornness, and sin. I don't think any of us would have come up with that idea on a pad of paper. And yet that's exactly what God does. And so we like to think that we can build and maintain good friendships through digital spaces, through our phones and through social media and whatnot. But that denies a fundamental reality about us being human. We occupy this space, this time and not another. Um, We're embodied people. Uh, You experience this when you're hanging out with a friend and their phone blows up. Ding, ding, ding. And, and before too long, you're like, look, just deal with whatever that is. You've already left this coffee or this lunch. You know, I'm not even here anymore. Go ahead. You're there already mentally, emotionally, etc. Just go, right? It, so we can only occupy one space. And I say that as a middle-aged man. I can only do one thing in one place at a time, <laughs> you know, okay? So I like the way Justin Early puts it. He says this in his book, we are bodies that desperately need others' bodies within arm's reach. And what he's saying is, there's something about being physically present. There's something about that hug. There's something about the body language when you're telling all of the full range of what you're feeling and out it comes and you can see the expression on their face, the way they're leaning in towards you. All of that stuff matters. All of it matters. Eusebius, in commenting about this passage from Mark, he wrote this. Uh, He's one of the early church fathers. He said, God, God, who could associate himself with the poor and lonely fishermen's class, to use them to carry out God's mission baffles all rationality. All rationality, which is to say God uses unsophisticated and common people. Often, I think we Americans, we want our lives to be extraordinary. We want to be famous. We want to, like, we want to do something huge. I remember a time when one of my alma maters was pushing a campaign, do something big for God. And I was like, I'm trying, but it's hard. <laughs> okay, do something big for God. It's a lot of weight to carry. Um, and so we want our careers, our friendships to be extraordinary. But God uses unsophisticated and common people, ordinary people, Ordinary friendships, but God often does the extraordinary through the ordinary, doesn't he? 
God often does the extraordinary through the ordinary. But again, geography matters, okay? So let me ask a couple of questions. In, in light of this passage, in light of the friendships that Jesus formed, in light of the fact of the doctrine of the incarnation itself, who in your world, among your family and friends, lives within a 15-minute drive of where you are now that you could invite in further? And then secondly, does your calendar have any rhythms for friendship? So I, I try to make things practical. So I've got some practical things about how to take this home. And the first is simply this, look for front porches. Look for front porches. And here's what I want to tell you about that because you're Americans living in America. And for some of you, this will be worth the sermon right here, what I'm about to show you. So sociologists say that we all move in and around these four social spaces, these four, these four spaces of belonging. And the first are these public spaces, 70 or more people. That's a typical worship service for a church. Um, that's a theatrical performance where people are putting on a play or a musical for a group of people. That's on game day when you're in your attire and you go into the arena and everyone else is wearing the same colors that you are <laughs> because they want their team to win. Those are those big public spaces. Um, you, you, you find a public space when you open your iMac or your, uh, what are they called, MacBooks. I don't even know because I don't use Mac products. <coughs> Okay, but you, you open that device up and it's got an apple and then you look around and everyone else has apples and you're like, I'm among my people, right? It's, it's just that feeling. I have that same feeling when Ivan opens his Microsoft Surface or Josh does the same thing with his Microsoft Surface, okay? So those are the public spaces. And then the kind of the next set of so social spaces, uh, spaces of belonging are these, uh, they're called social space. It's about 20 to 50 people. Way back a long time ago in American culture in the 1800s, every little small town would have a Saturday evening dance or a Friday evening dance. About 20 to 50 people in somebody's house, log cabin, and everybody within a certain ride or walk would come to the dance. Um, bowling leagues, all kinds of different examples of this in American culture. Uh, club uh, scout troops. Um, in churches, these are the classes and small groups and those kinds of things, ministry areas. Um, and it's in this space here where we meet someone else and we think to ourselves, I want to get to know them better. It's this space here where a lot of people in the past would meet somebody and say, I'm going to ask her on a date. Ooh, I really like him. Like that's the space where that took place. And then as you go a little bit more, there's the personal space. These are the people that most of us would call, these are my friends. And that's about five to 12 people. Um, and these are people that you cannot see them in a year and you can pick up right where you left off because they're friends. They know you, right? These are also the people that you can call at two in the morning. It's two in the morning and you need help. You need to go to the hospital you don't sweat calling these people because you know it, they're going to say, oh, absolutely, I'm coming right now, right? They'll drop everything. And then the final space is intimate space. Maybe two to four people. For a lot of Americans, it's typically only one. But this is someone who knows you completely as you are, naked and unashamed. 
Um, marriage relationships can be in this category. Really, really close friendships. But here's what I want you to know about this. America has suffered a just devastating loss of this second space, the social space. And so uh, bowling leagues, they don't exist anymore. Church classes and groups, like there's all these kinds of spaces that have disappeared from the American landscape. So now Americans are trying to get here from here. And it's hard to do that. This is why there's dating apps. Young people can't meet each other in these kinds of settings. So they use technology to kind of circumvent it and meet people in a way to where they think, okay, I want to get to know you a little more, right? And it's the devastating loss of these social spaces that's making things hard for us in the United States. Um, Robert Withnow has written on this extensively, as have a number of sociologists, okay? So front porches are exactly these kinds of middle spaces. So look for front porches. Build front porches if you have to. Um, Bethany's going to talk about a couple of front porches in a minute at the end of the service that our church does, right? <laughs> She's like, yes, I didn't know that I was, but I am, okay? All right? So look for front porches. And then secondly, uh, choose relationships over a particular house or apartment. Um, yes, housing costs are redunculous. Can I get an amen? Housing costs, like, just costs are redonkulous, but housing costs in particular are redonkulous, okay? Uh, but many of us will pick a particular house, and before we know it, we're 45 minutes away from our tribe, from our friends, from our church family. And that distance adds up over time. It adds up over time, okay? So choose relationships over a particular house or an apartment. Uh, move for relationships, not a job. Before you pick up and move across the country and leave family and friends behind, prayerfully consider whether that's something the Lord's asking you to do. Your truest and best friendships will outlast most of the jobs that you have. Let me say that again. Your truest and best friendships will outlast most of the jobs that you have. And for those of you that are younger, most of the careers that you will have in America. So move for relationships, not the job. And then root where you are. When Jenny and I moved here in 1992, we didn't know anyone. We were Chicago refugees. We came here for school. And we were trying a different church every Sunday. Every single Sunday, we would muster ourselves and walk in the doors of yet another church. And it was hard, okay? So if you've ever been in that circumstance, I know what that's like. I've been there. I've walked down that road. Jenny taught with uh, a lot of teachers that were twice her age. And one of these women was a lady named Joyce Gillespie. And Joyce pulled her aside one day at school, and she said, Jenny, honey, let me tell you something. You and Max need to stop this, and you need to just pick a church. So I'm going to give you a date. You have four weeks. In four weeks, you're going to pick one of these churches that you've been in, and you're just going to plunk down because it's going to take time to build relationships, and you've already wasted a whole semester. <laughs> and so you got four weeks and you need to pick someplace, and sure enough, we did. And you know the irony of that is, that's our mother congregation, where we ended up staying, and we plunked down, we got there, six months later, the associate pastor resigned, a year later, the senior pastor resigned, but we stayed. We stayed, right? So 
I just want to say that you can root where you are. You can root where you are. If you find yourself here, what are ways that you could begin asking people further in? And then lastly, schedule time with family and friends and keep it. I was horrif- I've been horrified in the last two weeks. So I've been talking to a lot of young people, and this is what I've learned. This is crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. So young people will make plans and then cancel at the last minute. And <laughs> like I, I need like an apoplectic shock thing right now just saying that out of my mouth. So what, here's what I'm told. Here's what I'm told. Part of it is like, if they've had like a really rough day, right? And like there's emotional stuff with the day, they, but right, that's every, <laughs> that, for a lot of us, that's every day. The tough days are every day. So that at the last minute, they will cancel at the last minute. And then I've heard people say, well, it's not so bad, Pastor Max, because sometimes you don't want to do it either. So then you're like, okay, great. I got my evening to myself. You know, I'll just binge watch something on Netflix or whatever. And so I just want to say, if you like, Try to avoid that. I know the days are tough. I know it can, like, trust me, I'm in ministry. Some days are tough, okay? But schedule and keep time with family and friends. And so I want to return to Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is close at hand. God has drawn close to us in time and space, but If we learned anything from last week, it is possible to drift, is it not? That's the whole encourage and rebuke part of friendship. It's possible for us to drift. So if I can flip the gears just a little bit, I want to speak to anybody who's here today or anybody who's listening to this online later that may find themselves having drifted from God a little bit, okay, in this season or drifted from God's people. Jesus is a friend of who? Sinners. Good news, Amanda. You and I are sinners. Jesus is my friend. (laughs) Jesus is my friend. Okay, Jesus is a friend of sinners. Jesus is loving, loyal, forgiving, and a truth teller. Jesus always keeps his promises. Jesus is a good friend. And Jesus told a very specific story to describe the kind of father that God the Father is. And that story is the story of the prodigal son. Now, That story is misnamed because the father had two lost sons, not one, but two. One went far away, one stayed at home, both of them were lost, both of them. And when the son who left returns, the father tells the servants to bring the fattened calf. So I want to point out something that you may have missed in this story. That man had been actively fattening an animal in hopes that his lost son who left would come home in anticipation that his lost son who had left would come home. That man was actively hoping and waiting for his lost son who left to come home. So Jesus is a friend of sinners and Jesus can bring you right into the presence of God the Father. One of the things that Jesus does with all of his brothers and sisters that he's gathered into God's family is he stands before God and he says, look, Father, look at all the sons and daughters that I have brought here into the family. Look at all your sons and daughters of whom you would also say, this is my beloved, because he's looking at you through what Jesus has done. That 
is an amazing invitation. So if you've drifted, I just want to suggest to you today, maybe it's time to come home. <laughs> maybe it's time to come home. And that's just the simple thing of repenting. All right, Lord, I've drifted. I know it. And then trusting. Jesus, you are enough. Jesus, you're what I need. Okay? So just come home. All right. That's probably enough for today. I'm going to ask our musicians to come up. I know when it's time to stop. <laughs>